And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, today we have a topic that is both metaphorically and literally close to my heart. We're talking about velvet paintings. Now, no, I'm not currently wearing a velvet painting, but I do enjoy wearing velvet. I drape myself in only the finest of fabrics. Those close to me already know that. But when it comes to art, this this endeavor, putting art on black velvet has become... You kind of it's look it's frowned upon. It's not considered to be high art, and I I don't really understand it because the stuff that is created through the black velvet revolution in the fifties and sixties really created some stunning pieces. Um, and we're gonna get into all that. I'm gonna take you on a wild ride through nineteen fifties and sixties history as we kind of track where black velvet as an art form in, peaked where it took a turn for the worse, and where it stands now. And I think that there's really only one guy on planet Earth that can give us those kind of insights, and that's a man named Carl Baldwin. Now, he, along with his business partner, Karen Anderson, run an art gallery dedicated exclusively to preserving the history of black velvet paintings. Now, this gallery is located in Los Angeles, California, and it houses the absolute definitive collection of black velvet paintings in the world. This is the number one collection. It's world class, and it's in Los Angeles, California. Now, don't fact check me on this. I'm going to say it with confidence. I don't want you to believe it. That's just the way this goes. And I'm going to have lots of pictures up on the website to show you just how amazing some of these pieces in this collection are. So without further ado, let's just jump right into this. Carl, thanks for taking time out for me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's glad to be, glad to be here. Uh, now, this is an amazing place. It's called the Velveteria, correct? Or Velveteria, or either Velvet- way. <laughs> either way, it's it's all good. Well, so tell me about it. What What is it exactly? How would you describe it? Well, it's we started as a museum of velvet painting, but it's much more of that. Uh, right now, I'm calling it lightning in a bottle because I get keep getting hit by the media all the time. But it's... Uh, uh, the history of painting on black velvet from the South Seas painters all the way till I've got guys today that paint for me down in Tijuana that can do anything. So, and the and the art of the velvet art covers just about every kind of subject matter you can think of, and some you wouldn't even want to think of, <laughs> as you will see. So, that's what was so interesting, and it is the Rodney Dangerfield, the redheaded stepchild of art where it's been disdained and looked down upon. They would never teach how to do this in an art school. At least I have never heard of an art school that would teach this. So all these people are self-taught, but once they discover how to do it, and it's technically hard to do, then they uh, 
they just go on forever doing it as long as they can because the results are so magnificent. You know, I completely agree with you. I'm looking at, I mean, we're sitting here right in the middle of your museum, uh, which is which is kind of a cool way to do an interview. And there are some amazing pieces in here. And to me, if I had to look at velvet art, I actually think it's a superior medium because you start out with black and you're painting in the lights, which we'll get to the technique in a second. But it's, um, I, I don't know, I just think that it, it creates a very unique look that you can't really replicate with any other type of visual art. Well, yeah, you can, you know, people, man will paint on anything from the early paintings in the caves of France and uh, where the first thing they ever painted was a woman's breast. So that's for the permanent record. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but, but then you, when you paint those same uh, breasts or, you know, that same naked lady on a piece of black velvet, it pops out because when the light hits the nap, uh, it, it dances and bounces and you get a three-dimensional effect that you cannot achieve on canvas that everybody paints on or paper everything on those mediums looks flat to me mm -hmm. well I, I totally agree we're gonna get to that in a second but i want to know how you got into this because you have quite an extensive collection some would argue one of the best in the world H how did you how'd you get into this well um <clears throat> when i was a little kid back in the 50s my uncle charlie charlie baldwin down fullerton he was a worldwide adventure explorer and he was in the oil business down in the south seas and burma and other places and so he uh, eventually after world war ii would go down to tahiti quite a bit and so he had some of these velvet paintings in his house in fullerton stashed away in a closet when his young uh his young uh, nephews, my brother Jimmy and I, came over to visit. So we were sneaking in his closet and found these things, and uh, you know that was our first introduction to velvet and sex all in one. So that uh, set us on a course <laughs> that we could never veer off of. Fortunately, what were the paintings? <laughs> what were the paintings of? They were just the typical wahinis that you see in here. The you Dusky know, Maidens. And yeah, the, uh, right. You know, down there, maybe in the water, or, you know, in that tropical setting. And sure. that was a thing. You, just, you know, it was like a vision of, it was a vision of paradise, frankly. And we're going to Catholic school and hearing about another paradise that I didn't care too much about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> At least their version of it. But, yeah, we saw that. And then we... Um, and then we're, we grew up in a place called Balboa in the 60s. So a few years later, they had the, you know, all the hippie stuff came in. So about 1965, there was this, they called it a head shop down the Balboa Peninsula near a place called the Fun Zone. And so we went in there and they had all this, all these posters. And then they had a separate room with the blacklight posters. And there was a couple of velvet paintings that were blacklight and one of a devil I remember that I really wanted bad. So that was our exposure to the Mexican stuff, which then we saw that they sold it all over the streets and, and all over the country, actually. And then we'd go down to Mexico and you'd get your bull whip and your, uh, your Spanish fly, your velvet painting, your sure. dose of something you don't want. The typical stuff. When you're older. You yeah. right. <laughs> when you're in 19, 18, whatever. So how many of these paintings do you have? How many have you collected over the years? Uh, we've collected close to 5,000, I think. I haven't wow. counted them. They're in a uh, secret uh, 
storage undisclosed facility. location and, yeah yeah and parts unknown <laughs> no that's fair five thousand now how can you tell because you know we're going to talk about some of the masters in a second um but how can you tell what's original and what isn't well what do you mean by original i guess i mean you know let's come back to that question because i do have a, a point to that question but so let's talk about the um the the master so there are, there are a group of people so basically what we're talking about is velvet canvas people painting on it and this became kind of popularized by um, Edgar Leitig right right Edgar Leitig was a uh, was born in uh, East St Louis in the early 1900s and he was a talented artist and he uh, right from the beginning and. Uh, so he uh, worked his way up in the advertising business, being a commercial artist, and he worked for Foster Kleiser, who were the big billboard company here in California. And then he, this is during the Depression, and he was doing the work of like three guys, and he is, then he heard about a job painting signs in Hawaii, so he made his way to Hawaii, and then he further heard about uh, adventures in Tahiti. So he packed up his uh, his kind of mean mother and him and his mother went down to Tahiti and uh, got kicked around by the locals a little bit but he finally settled down there he brought like he brought the five primary colors down to his uh, place called the Villa Velour in Tahiti and this man he made uh, he found his velvet in a funeral parlor because they lined the coffins with the velvet and he ended up painting the beautiful women of Polynesia on the velvet because he said velvet can capture their beauty like no other medium. So he became world famous. Uh, a guy from Hollywood went down there in the 30s and bought some of Lee Tig's paintings back and opened the first tiki bar across from uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater back in the 30s. And 1935, Mutiny on the Bounty with Clark Gable was the uh, best picture of the year for the Oscars. So that whole tiki thing was in the air back during that time and back with Defoe and Gauguin and all that, you know, back all the way to the 1800s. So <coughs> that paradise thing was in the air. And then uh, there was another group of guys down there from Australia that knew Lee Tigga. So they're all down there painting the beautiful women, you know, having their merry life. And even during, and what, what, what makes Lee Tigga so great is he made his money on his art, lived in paradise in his own time, um, sold it all, and uh, and um, was world renowned. Picasso knew about him, and I mean everybody else in the world was starving during the depression or killing each other during World War II. And there's Leitig down those islands painting naked ladies. I mean, what's better than that? Talk about a juxtaposition. Jeez Louise. <laughs> well, and you know what? What's great about Leitig is that he was the first guy to really present this as art. He framed it, he, you know, he, and he kind of created a style and a look that I think kind of made it, um, not only made it popular, but kind of legitimized painting on, on velvet. And he was kind of the first guy to do that. Um, and also, you, uh, you, let's talk about Wayne Decker. So Wayne Decker kind of... Um, he commissioned everything from him, basically, right? Yeah, Wayne Decker um, was a, a jeweler from Utah, and he was you know, a Mormon, and uh, he was down there in Tahiti, and he found Lee Tig one day and uh, so got him sobered up, 
and uh, made a standing deal with Leetig to buy all of his super-duper paintings. So uh, Decker kept Leetig in money, and uh, that's how he survived down there, uh, largely. And uh, Decker's uh, granddaughter came into the Velveteria, and I got a couple paintings from her, and I said, I've always wondered about your grandfather. What was the deal with that guy? You know, what did the elders and the bishops in Utah think of your grandfather bringing all these naked ladies on velvet into Salt Lake City? And she goes, that was just Wayne being Wayne. So I go, okay, well. Who was Mormon? Did you mention yeah, that? Yeah, he was a Mormon. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, a Mormon missionary. So, so, he, <laughs> so that was their deal. And so I asked her, I go, where are all these paintings? Are they up in like in a secret room in the in the Great, great temple up there, you know, maybe near the underwear room. <laughs> so we we're just laughing. But he, she told me even during the hide the fighting during World War II, my uh, grandfather was getting these paintings up from Tahiti. So there was an underground railroad of Wahinis going from uh, Papete to Salt Lake City during World War II. And somebody's got to make that movie. That's, that sounds amazing. Now, you have quite a collection of Lee tags, correct? Um, we have, well, we have, let's see, one, four or five in here. So, yeah, we have about five, six. And then Lee Tiggs, after he, he died in a motorcycle accident in 1953, come back from a party, they just hit a wall, and that was it for him. And But afterwards, he had a uh, promoter named Barney Davis who uh, continued to sell and promote Lee Tigg all through the 50s, 60s, and they had he had different artists making copies of Lee Tiggs. And so sometimes it's hard to tell if a Lee Tigg is for real or not because he printed his name in block capital letters, which is really easy to imitate. But if you looked at the velvet and really did a study it, I'm sure you could determine it. And we have letters of provenance. Like one of our paintings is of uh, was owned by um, Virginia Lowe of the Lowe's Theater chain. So these are high-end people who collected these you know, back in the, I'd say, pre-'70s when the hippies came in and wrecked a whole culture of America. Right. Um, <laughs> well, that is, that's, I guess that's a good way to put it. Um, the, uh, so now when we talk about, I guess what you did is you kind of segued into the question I was asking, which is how can you tell an original from a fake? So with, with some of the, the art, the people who kind of treated this as art originally, and the kind of people you would want an original from, how can you tell like an original Leeteg or a, you know, or a McPhee or, you know, Behan? A lot of them is like, where are you getting from? Well, the Behans I'm getting right from the family. So, mm. you know, that's okay. one thing. But, you know, it's... It, like, I'll give you an example. I got a huge collection. Our biggest collection was from a, a retired oral surgeon from Pasadena named Dr. Kitch. Dr. Lauren Kitch was his name. And we're on a show called Offbeat America on HGTV. And so Dr. Kitch's uh, uh, protector, whatever she was, called us up <laughs> and says, Hey, my friend Dr. Kitch has a couple hundred paintings from Hawaiian Tahiti. He doesn't know what to do with them. So I drove down to uh, Riverside County to this real bad area called the Groves that was uh, a hobo jungle full of ne'er-do-wells and uh, 
and uh, lean-tos. And so Dr. Kitsch was living in a Dodge van surrounded by marble statues, and he had a little trailer filled with his velvet paintings, which we went through. And they were the real deal. He had the papers. He had the stories. I mean, he was the man. And he had Tyrese, the Behans. He had all of it. So we knew he was for real, and like I said, he had the papers. And then I got a... Oh, let me tell you the Dr. Kitsch story. Yeah, I was going to say, we've got to go into this Dr. Kitsch story. It is a heck of a story. So, yeah, yeah I, Dr. Kitsch, uh, we're up in Portland, Oregon with the museum, and we had just opened. We had just barely been there for a few months, and we got on TV with this thing. So I'm down there in July, uh, Dr. Kitsch, outside of Hemet, California. And so this uh, Dr. Kitsch was living in a Dodge van surrounded by marble statues that were around his... Pasadena swimming pool in his backyard back when he had money. He had an office on Mentor Avenue in the 1960s with his exotic back room full of velvet paintings of naked ladies. And so he was quite a character to be in conservative Pasadena with that kind of scene. Sure. So, so uh, Dr. Kitch, now he's 87 years old. I'm sitting with him on these rocks out in this hobo jungle in this it's all these it just had no money it was it was, it was really pathetic he had a chicken coop he was eating the eggs out of uh, shag carpeting on the ground to keep the river dust down and he's living in that van and I'm going Dr. Kitsch what the hell happened to you how did you end up like this what's going on here man and he tells me it, it was the women the women <laughs> they took it all everything and he sinks his head down for like the moment of silence. And I'm sitting there going, you dirty, rotten women. How can you do this? And, but that's what they do. And so <laughs> Dr. Kitsch will raise his head up with the biggest shit-eating grin <laughs> saying, it was worth it. It was totally <laughs> worth it. And so it's coming from guys eating eggs out of a trailer, right? Yeah, yeah right. eating eggs out of a chicken coop. Chicken coop. Some of the eggs were already, you know, were uh, like, you know, had the chickens already in them. So oh, yeah, I guess you got to have uh, a certain kind. You maybe have Andrew Zimmerman figure out how to, <laughs> you know, deal with that stuff. <laughs> it was worth it though, I guess, in his mind. Yeah, so it was all worth it. And then I came along, and then Karen, uh, you know, it was her money, and so we. Uh, we looked at each other and we went for it. Maybe mistakenly, I don't know. I'm here talking to you, but it was like the Albert Brooks Brooks movie, Lost in America, where we lost the nest egg. You know, not in Las Vegas, but in uh, Hemet. <laughs> that made it <even> worse. <laughs> but we got all these velvet paintings, which put the collection over the top, world class. Now we had the Lee Tigs, and then one of the Lee Tigs went. To uh, it's called Tahitia. It went to uh, the Musée de Quai Branly in Paris, France, as part of the Tiki Pop Show put on by Sven Kirsten, the Tiki God, and he had this great show in Paris. And so th this redhead stepchild of art, the Rodney Dangerfield of art, we got into a museum in Gay Paris, next on the Seine, next to the Eiffel. Tower. That's so, amazing. Uh, critics dance the poot. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on that. 
now let's let's talk about some of the other guys um, who kind of contributed to the field. Um, let's talk about Charlie McPhee only because he kind of um, is a you know was a student of Leetig. Yeah. Um, tell me about him and what his style was and where he came from. Yeah, Charlie McPhee was uh, from was born in Australia, and when he was eight years old, he found his father uh, hacked to death to death in the outback by who knows who, Jeez. and so that really, you know, set him back. But he made a vow to himself to never be that depressed about anything in life again and to live a happy life. And so, and he did. And so he set out, um, and he lived in New Zealand. But he lived in different islands um, in, the, in the South Pacific. He was a cop on one island. He had various jobs but he's a strong man at one point yeah and he was is a weight yeah he was a weightlifter too yeah he's a strong man in the circus these guys were all kind of like carny types in a way and so he uh him and lee tig got together and he married one of lee tig's models elizabeth and um they went down to uh new zealand where they became national figures they had parties every weekend from friday night to monday morning where the grog flowed endlessly, they said. And, uh, and so he is quite a character. There's a movie a young woman in New Zealand did about him, and um, she, uh, you can see uh, McPhee in this movie dancing, disco dancing, and he's got the greatest uh, toupee in the world. It's like an arrowhead. It's like a... Uh, a white arrowhead. Are you talking about Velvet Dreams? <laughs> yeah, the, mov the movie Velvet Dreams. <laughs> it's not a toupee. I, cause I, wa I saw this over and over again. It's actually a comb over from the back, like from the back third of his head. It comes all the way up into a V. It's amazing. I rewound it like six times. Uh, okay, yeah. You, you, okay, you saw it. <laughs> I, <know>, yeah. <laughs> that, that, I know. It's a most amazing. And there's a movie called Comb Over the Movie, which, uh, you know, Comb Over is a big part of Velvet. Yeah, but yeah, sure. Charlie McPhee. <laughs> He was, he, yeah. He Dressed in a leisure suit in like yeah, yeah, 87, that, yeah. Yeah, you have to see I that I love clip. his wardrobe. I, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, that, the movie I didn't get that much, but yeah, to see McPhee in there, and you knew that that guy was just a happy camper all his life. I yeah. mean, that guy. He had five had, wives, and all of them were models. That's what I gathered from the movie. That's what they said. Okay. So he did all right. Yeah, yeah. These guys were all coxmen, I tell everybody. Because they all had an eye for the ladies, and Lee Tig would. I mean, his his guy, guy Barney Davis said Lee Tig would uh, a woman walk in the room and he would disrobe her with his eyeballs. I mean, literally. Jeez. These guys were what we used to call horn dogs. Yeah, he uh, he was something else. Um, now, so let's talk about um, Louis Behan. Is it? Am I saying that correctly? He's yeah. my he's my favorite. When I look around. I'm looking at his stuff right now. There's just something about what he did. They all, I don't know if they're original. They all look original. There's so much going on. There's so much detail. And all the colors pop off of it. I mean, he's just, these are unbelievable. Yeah, the, to get the detail on velvet painting is, is just so hard because you have to be perfect with every stroke. You, you use a dry brush. And he used oil, you know, which is harder to work with. And he, uh, Painstakingly did uh, drawings of his paintings before he and you know laid them all out and then he took to the velvet and I'm not sure I'll be corrected but I think it took him you know six eight months to do each painting. Oh no kidding. Yeah, something like that. And so he uh, and then he well he was uh, Air Force one of them 
that when he's a navigator in this airplane, that's a self-portrait of him. And uh, detail on the map on this uh, painting is surreal to do that because you have to be perfect. There is no going over. You can't white it out like canvas. It's you're committed. You're mm. you're set forever on that. So uh, if you don't do it right, you just got to toss it. So <laughs> that's the end of it. Yeah, yeah. And so I mean, these guys had to be super. Um, OCDC, I guess you'd call it now. Right. I tell the young kids, hey, there's not meeting people like him anymore because they give you all these drugs to flatten you out so you can <laughs> live in your cubicles and everything. But uh, Behan, he could paint this well, but he designed shower curtains for a living. So that's kind of oh, the okay. American way, you know. <laughs> so how did you stumble across him? Um, his son, I think his son David contacted us and said, my father, once we got on TV a lot, we got an Anthony Bourdain in the Tonight Show, which we would talk about. But so people from all over were contacting us with the craziest stories. And it continues to this day, the stories we get about the Velvets. But his son told us about his father, Louis Behan, uh, painted in the Bronx. And he had, they had there's a video uh, the family made of him talking about his paintings and they had them like on the every door had two paintings on it the bathroom door would be one on each side two on each side of the door and uh and i mentioned yeah he uh he was in the uh, new york world's fair i think back in the 60s in one of the expositions in 64 was it yeah I think there. I, I read something about. I think it was Litig who was in. He was in the World's Fair as well in 1964, I believe. It they was. had. Uh, they had um, the Hawaiian Pavilion brought some. Uh, yeah, they brought some uh, velvet paintings. A guy named Lou Kreitzman, who was a d art dealer over there in Hawaii, and uh, he finagled uh, velvet paintings into the uh, Hawaiian Pavilion at the New York World's Fair, much to the chagrin of the fine artists of Hawaii, who Litig battled the Hawaiian Art Society all the time. And he said that these art critics could not create something that was on the end of a stable boy's shovel. So <laughs> Litig had a quite a way with words also. That's true. And the other kind of fun thing about these guys is they all painted different things. So I'm looking at Behan now, and it's mostly uh, male figures, a um, lot of detail. Um, but like you know, Ralph, uh, Charlie McFree, and um, Edward, jeez, uh, Edward Leetig, But they both did a lot of different stuff, but mostly a lot the Paradise Tahiti. You know, th that was kind of their subject matter. Yeah, and that's and they sold these, so they sold, and a lot of the stuff was you know stuff that was sold to tourists. So they you know painted the local scenes which mm. the tourists could take back sure. home, and that's why it was a big explosion in. Hawaii in the 60s. That was the next big center of uh, velvet painting. But, yeah, Behan, he painted these historical figures. Like, we got Samson over here. We, mm. got, um, we got pirates. We got, uh, we got the Comanche Indian chief, whose name I forget right now. But we, were, we did the Lubbock Arts Festival, and we took the Behans down here, and people were coming up going, that's my uh, great-great-grandfather, the on the th on the thing, yeah, the, yeah. The, as a subject the, matter, the, the Comanche Indian chief. Wow, no kidding. Yeah, and then the Buffalo like Bill. Yeah, Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill, pirate, and uh, we got gladiators. And 
He wrote stuff on the back of these that was kind of amazing. He was a very over-the-top guy. <laughs> and he dressed in one of the paintings. He also loved Robert De Niro. We got one of Bobby D. And then he also uh, one of uh, Louis Behan as dressed as uh, Indiana Jones with holding a skull and everything. Oh, I missed that one. I got to <laughs> Yeah, he, he's, he's something else. And uh, then he met a woman in Palestine. In 1947, he took her t- and took big format pictures of her and put her in all in many of his paintings. That she was his muse. So you'll see this beautiful woman standing there naked, and behind her is a burning civilization. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> uh, now let's talk about Ralph uh, Tyree, because um, he's another one of these guys around the same era. Um, now he was known mainly for painting naked uh, island women, correct? Well, Tyree, he did. Uh, um, he was a World War II Marine. He was from Turlock, California, right next to Modesto. He was quite an athlete there. And then he went, you know, like everybody, including my father, to World War II and joined the Marine Corps. And um, was, after the war, he stayed uh, on the uh, in the islands in Hawaii and Guam. And uh, he had seven children. We met his wife and some of his kids. One of the, they're all artists. And they uh, told me, yeah, my dad, he would go uh, down to the beach and like, take a picture of somebody and then um, just paint from that. So he, like Lee Tig, really captured uh, the people down there just exquisitely. I mean, his paintings are, he's, he's one of the greats, no doubt about it. And also, he painted animals. We have a koala mm. bear that's so realistic. And he did tigers, he did these uh, bush babies. And the thing about animals on velvet is the nap and the fur of the animal are so similar that it, we end up painting, you know, like the koala bear on velvet. It looks like that koala bear, you could just take it out of the frame and hold it. Right. <laughs> They're pretty amazing. I mean, this is, these are, these are the good guys. When the history of, of velvet, like painting on velvet, and for America, anyway, the mo- let's say the modern history of it, because this dates back centuries. Um, painting on velvet. So now, how I want to talk about the transition because it kind of started out with Edward Lee Tig, and he kind of just hit the right thing at the right time. You know, he's painting island maidens. Hawaii became a state. People got into tiki bars. Um, everyone wanted one of these for their tiki bars, um, and he just kind of hit the right thing at the right time. These were popular through the '60s. Um, and then in like I think it was the '70s or so, these everything kind of switched from Hawaii to Tijuana and um, Juarez, correct? Right. So, what, so talk about this this switch because this I think this also kind of denotes a transition from becoming art and where it kind of goes into being more commercialized. It goes right into the gutter. <laughs> Anyways, your words, not mine. The, sir. T- the Tijuana gutter, so yeah. to speak. Your words. Well. I have a friend <laughs> named Cecilia Rodriguez who's 96 years old, and she's the last of the great painters from the heyday in Hawaii in the early 60s. And she painted all the, you know, the wahinis and you know the guys with the the conch shell hina rapa, everything for the tourists. And and then in 19, she went uh, to Australia and Hong Kong with her velvets and like a world tour with them, and. Then in 1975, they came to her and said, she was in five galleries in the, in the Hawaiian Islands with her velvets. And in 75, they said, we can't sell your velvets here anymore. And she goes, I said, why can't you? And she goes, 
The stuff from the border in Tijuana has killed the high-end velvet painting market. Now everybody thinks it's unicorns, Elvis, bullfighters, and all that. So we're we're screwed. Sunk. And so that was it for her and the velvets, 1975. And um, same year, disco was popular. By the way, no no correlation, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So 1975 was a really, uh, if you think about it, was really like the beginning of the end of American <laughs> culture. <laughs> You're right, disco and all that. Even looking back, disco is better than what we got today. That's I would I would say you're exactly I mean, right. No country, the country is out of the music. I mean, well, you know, I'm going to make a profound statement here. Are you ready, Carl? <laughs> yeah, I'm All right. profound. All right, <laughs> All right. <laughs> belt me in. I'm going to. So here's what I think. You, when you when because you you kind of made the argument that everyone kind of treats velvet paintings on velvet kind of like the redheaded stepchild. Your words, right? Uh, and I agree, and I think the reason is not, we call it a velvet painting because that's the medium that we're painting on, right? So we're, the canvas is velvet. Right. That's really irrelevant, right? So it just happens to be that for some reason, velvet as a canvas became kind of, the subject matter that is painted on the canvas became very kitschy, very commercialized. You know, I think when Edgar Lietig was doing it, this whole idea of like, I'm going to use this velvet medium to do something very specific, which is to pop human naked bodies off of it, right? It worked for him. That's why it's kind of considered fine art. As we made the transition into creating unicorns and all this type of stuff, the subject matter became kind of kitschy because it was really for tourists. The specific black velvet was for tourists, and it wasn't made for a museum. Now, I would argue that if you took an artist and gave him velvet and created an art piece that was specifically to be made into art, I think you could get one of these things into the Louvre. That's my, that's my prediction. Well, we just missed the Louvre. By that much, by a little just bit across the river, you, you know, were like a, yeah, stones throw from it. That's I, my point. Yeah, right. Well, um, I, I, there's an artist I know. He's uh, named uh, Daniel uh, Glenn. Daniel J. Glenn. No, 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 no. not him. Different artist. Uh, and, um, he's down the border in Nogales. Um, Daniel Guerrero, mm -hmm. and his, um, and he grew up so poor in Tijuana. He made paintbrushes out of his grandmother's hair. Whoa. And but he painted, you know, all the standard stuff. He painted the same nude 1500 times for the tourists. But he also did really fine fine art. And I have another friend Fernando Flores Juarez who uh does real fine art and all kinds of different stuff and they start out as velvet painters and uh Juarez in the 60s. And um and the and a few others I'm finding out, you know, they went on to uh, Mexico City and other things and now are great artists. But they started out as velvet painters because these velvet painters back in, in uh, Juarez and all along the border were really young. I mean, one guy we know, uh, Daniel Marquez, was nine years old when he started out doing this. So if these kids could draw, they put them to that velvet. Because, you know, you're starving down there in that border. There's no jobs, and so and they have all these American tourists go down there. So boom, boom, boom. Daniel uh, Marquez told me that he had his first nervous breakdown at nine years old when he had to paint like eight Elvises one afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> but then, but now even the border has dried up because people go to Las Vegas or other places for their entertainment and not mm -hmm. down to TJ or Baja like we used to do in mm -hmm. the hippie days and get the velvet paintings when and it was 
it was big all along the border. Right. But that's dying out too. And then it was big all in the Philippines and Australia, anywhere there were tourists. So I think it's looked down upon partly because it was tourist art, partly because it was from the third world. So there's a racist element of it, you know, like, oh, it's just, you know, those people down there doing it and oh right. look what they could do oh it's so cute you know but right. they don't think it's talent like as art right yeah so it's well, I tell you a story yeah. when we were in Portland Oregon a young woman named a reporter for the Oregonian wrote a feature article um, for the Oregonian about us and I told her look at all this cool stuff you got to work with swing for the fences knock it out of the park spin Joe Pulitzer's cat for me <laughs> a year later she yeah a year later she comes to me and says I'm a Pulitzer Prize finalist writing about you guys uh -oh. and I couldn't even believe it you know I was just goofing around and well not really but meanwhile, <laughs> back at the Oregonian, uh, there's a art critic named D.K. Rowe who uh, vilified us all over town, would never come in, told everybody, I'm never coming in there. It's not art. It's kitsch. It's lowbrow. It's this, that, the other. And besides, they're from California. It can't be any good. So I'd go, wow. So, Inara, you get the Pulitzer, be a Pulitzer finalist because you had curiosity as a writer. And this putz wouldn't even come in because he's got his nose so high in the air. He thinks he knows it all. And that's the trouble with a lot of the art world. They never were taught it, so they don't get it. It's called prejudice, and it's bullshit. And so we're, uh, you know, we're stick up a velvet painting of Elvis or Unicorn in front of an art critic, and they shrivel like the Wicked Witch of the West getting hit by the bucket of water. They can't. They, they they hit him with a velvet painting and they're stuck for an answer. These guys. Well, you know what's funny about that is you should see some of the stuff that exists in a modern art museum where you know I think it was the there was uh, the fountain which is um, you know it's just a urinal that's that they put in an art museum. It's just a urinal, you know, and the commentary on what is art that's supposed to start you know start that conversation. Which I get the importance of that, but however, how can you look at a urinal and say that that's art and look at something painted on velvet and by just by the fact that it's painted on velvet saying that cannot possibly be art. The Voice of America for China covered us when we were in Portland, Oregon, and I told them, the Chinese communists, are you going to believe, the people of China told them, are you going to believe your own eyes or what somebody's telling you? And you, those are watchwords for our times because don't believe what you hear, folks. Come on. I agree with you. You know, I think we glossed over. I want to touch back on this: the the transition from the Hawaiian to the to Mexico. How and why did that happen? Well, they painted on velvet. You know, velvet was a royal cloth, so it was you know brought over from it was from the silkworm and Marco Polo, the Silk Road. So it was a royal cloth. The popes, the royalty, all dressed in velvet. And then I know in New Spain and Mexico before it was Mexico, it was New Spain for a couple hundred years, and they had all the fineries of the world because they got all the best stuff from Europe coming through Veracruz and all the best stuff from Asia coming up from Acapulco, into, or up from Manila for, into Acapulco. So on the folklore dresses, which were made of velvet, they painted on those. So I mean, they painted on the, the, the dresses. And then look at the bullfighters, how they dress mm -hmm. with their... Uh, you know, with all the glitter and everything. So it's a tradition of that. And then 
I don't know who is the first one to sit there and paint Jesus, but I think he was probably the first one to be painted on velvet because, you know, the holy things from the Bible were always first things painted on velvet or painted on anything, really. And um, so then I, and when we wrote the book, I heard about a guy in 1950 who was painting on velvet in, uh, down in um, Vera Cruz, of all places. So then, in, then like I say, in the, or the 60s, it popped, and uh, when they started painting all the, the unicorns and matadors and all that stuff that we think of from the Mexican border velvets, that, and they just went everywhere. And a guy named Doyle Harden really started it. He went to um, El Paso from Georgia in 1965, brought some velvets back from El Paso to his store in Georgia and sold them all and said, hey, this is, this is something. So he went back, started a factory, in El Paso and Juarez called Chico Arts, and they made velvet paintings by the millions. They uh, did them in, uh, like Henry Ford, they did assembly line style, one mm. painter with one color brush, and going on down the line until they had, you know, a desert scene or whatever they were doing. And so then other, other companies started up like that. So they're like the first Maquiadoras down there before that came in with Reagan in the 80s. And these guys had mansions, they had Cadillacs, they had tons of money because these velvet paintings sold all over. Doyle Harden was lining the new motels along the interstates that were being built in America in the 60s. He lined the walls with velvets. And he had he got guys selling them in uh, Alaska, Costa Rica. He had Scientologists selling them for, for a while. So they were just everywhere. And you see people selling like the NFL blankets and stuff like that in the street corners. Mm -hmm. Those are the same guys that used to sell the velvet paintings all over the vacant lots. All over America they sold them too. And you could just could not avoid them anywhere. Well, it's pretty amazing. In Mexico, they even, in 1979, they even had a, uh, a the Quetzalcoatl Painters Union in Tijuana, the 350 members. And that's pretty impressive that it was so popular and there were so many of them that they actually unionized. I mean, that's, that's how big this was. Right. And yeah, wherever there's, a, where's, there's money, there's power. And so these guys had money, and they formed that union down there. Yeah, there's a man named Sam Quinones who wrote a book called um, Delfino's, Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream. And, uh, and he had a whole chapter about the... Uh, the the political uh, aspect of velvet painting in Tijuana and how they kind of took power in that city. So it's, it is fascinating. You know, that, and people just overlook this, but it really, they had some juice down there. They were like the, uh, they had juice like the narco, you know, guys like El Chapo do today because they had so much dough. <laughs> El Chapo. <laughs> so now let, let's talk about, you've mentioned this a couple of times. We're going to get this. We're going to hit this right on the head. Everyone, everyone, Whenever anyone thinks of velvet paintings, they think of the Velvet Elvis. Uh, now, how did this come into play, do you think? Well, Elvis is the king, yeah. and so what do people want to buy going down with their good taste down to Tijuana, <laughs> and they see the king on velvet, that you got to have it. You know, it's... That simple. It's, yeah, it's that simple. It's like finding the whole... It's the holy grail of velvet. At this point, you know, you got to have an Elvis. 
Well, you know, well, it's funny. I read this almost poetic description of why the Velvet Elvis is so popular. I'm going to hit you with it, Carl. Okay. So basically, this made the argument that the peak of Velvet was 75 to 76. So in 1977, when Elvis died in August 19th, I believe, 1977. 16th. 16th. So I'm sorry. I was close. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So Velvet was on the decline. And at that exact same moment, uh, Velvet was on the decline. Elvis was also on the decline. He had gained a lot of weight. He was on a lot of prescription medications. He was, you know, very close to dying in the early part of 1977, obviously. So the marriage of these two declining things kind of met at this one moment uh, in 1976, 1977, and these two declining art forms kind of spiraled down together because after 1977, Velvet kind of goes away, you know, once we hit the 80s. Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting analysis of how these two kind of fuse because that is the thing you think of when you think of Velvet, is the Velvet Elvis. It's in songs all over the place. Right, and yeah, like, well, uh, like I was just saying, you know, the culture, when we were talking about 75, the culture kind of declined. You know, Elvis was way out of it by then. Yeah. And, uh, and um, yeah, and so Elvis kind of, you know, got on that unicorn, and they both descended into hell. Then they rose up like a phoenix from the ashes in the form of uh, the punk rockers and our nihilistic society that continues to this day, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so now let's talk. You, you've got a lot of very unique pieces here. Um, can we talk about some of your favorites? What, what's your favorite piece that you that you that you currently have in the museum? Well, I, I love the Lee Tiggs, of course, the classic stuff. But I'm looking right over here at um, my uh, wall of Sam Peckinpah, and I'm looking at there's a movie named Cockfighter by Monty Hillman, and I'm looking at Warren Oates and and. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton with their fighting cocks. I mean, that's a pretty damn good painting. We're talking about the animal, too, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, right, right, yeah. the animals. And then looking at the Wild Bunch, John Wayne, we haven't talked about him, is a classic mm. on Velvet where they would never get it right, which uh, there's a movie called Rooster Cogburn, and his eye patch is always on the wrong eye. Is it really? Yeah. So that's why I say my th- John Wayne, the Duke says, my third eye is the good eye. <laughs> you know what's funny? So I'm looking at it now. Uh, that particular painting looks very similar. There's a, there's a classic velvet called, I think, the Matador, or no, the Bandito. Um, and it's been replicated over and over again. But it's very similar to that. And I think the patch is always on his right eye. I don't know if that has anything to do with the way this one was painted. but Right. We have a whole bandito wall we do from time to time. And the, the most famous of them all is a guy named uh, El Indio. And, uh, and he was uh, in, well, he won the Cannes Film Festival in uh, 1947. This movie did The Pearl with John Steinbeck. And then he was in a lot of Sam Peckinpah's movies. Uh, his Mapache and the Wild Bunch. And so he, he's a national figure down there in Mexico, and everybody knows El Indio, and so he's one of the most popular banditos, so to speak, on Velvet. Mm. And then I also heard when I was first doing this that a guy just 
got, told his friend, hey, put this sombrero on and put this eye patch on and then started painting him. <laughs> Sometimes the simplest yeah, yeah, answer yeah, yeah. is <laughs> so, you know, Occam's razor, you know like what I mean? When I, tell the, when I hear these people say my art teacher, you know, said when uh, this guy over in Europe in the heyday of European art went, you know, right, went left to right with a stroke instead sure. of right to left, he revolutionized art. And I go, well, how the hell you didn't... How you how, how how the hell you know he didn't just sneeze? Right, you right. Know? I mean, it's, it's it's cold and dark and dirty there. No one knows. Yeah, nobody really knows. So everybody's making stuff up, and and I try not to do that, but I could. Yeah, it's like drunk history. <laughs> but you know, the truth the truth about this is so much better than anything anybody can make up about it. That's what's so compelling about these stories is that they're they're true. People really lived them, and. Uh, and it's, they just keep coming and coming and coming. Like I got one, if you got a minute, we, people yep. come in here and say about the clowns that grandma had a little room for us kids in her house for us to sleep in when we visited, mm. and she had a velvet clown in us to keep <laughs> us company. And so and, and that's what sent my sister to the psychiatrist, and my <laughs> brother, you know, went to dementia. And I go, well, how do you think those Beverly Hill uh, psychiatrists have all those yachts and mountain cabins and luxury vacations, man? It was that velvet clown that someone put in that bedroom. So what you should give, when someone has a baby, a psychiatrist should go and give the family a velvet clown so that they can work in about 20 years. Yeah, if you see that out. Weasley guy in a smock with, with a gift, you know, right. of art for you, it's probably a psychiatrist That's trying to move. trap your mind. <laughs> oh, and so you have, uh, speaking of that, the Frank Zappa. You wanted me to, let's talk about the Frank Zappa. You have a Frank Zappa on the crappa. Uh, in your bathroom. Right. That was our room, our ode to uh, Marcel Duchamp. And then... <laughs> and <laughs> so fancy. And now it's Oprah's favorite room, which uh, diverts from the story. But, yeah, I was talking to these guys that paint for me in uh, Mexico. And so I'm telling them, I go, there's this guy, Frank Zappa, and there's a famous poster of him sitting on the toilet. Because we have all these paintings that were done way long time ago in the 60s of like little kids sitting on the toilet and the devil sitting on the toilet. And so, and the Pink Panther also was real popular sitting on the toilet. So, and then Zappa. So I finally gave up and I said, these guys are too young. They don't even know who Frank Zappa is. This is a lost cause. So I split and I come back an hour later and my friend shows me on his cell phone a picture of the Frank Zappa poster. And I said, where'd you get that, man? And he goes, a woman walked up to me wearing this on a T-shirt right after you left. So I looked up to the heavens and said, thanks, Frank, because how is somebody going to walk up to, you know, my friend Roman down there and uh, with that on a T-shirt in 2013? It couldn't possibly be coincidence. No, there is no coincidence, Velvet. I keep seeing signs like this from the other side. I just had a woman <laughs> whose mother lived down the street. I got Ted Nugent over here with his flaming guitar. He goes, my mom lives right down the street from Ted Nugent. You know? And then the one of the coolest stories I have, I have a Velvet Painting of the Wild Bunch over here. Sam Peckinpah's great movie. And a young man on New Year's Eve came in and says, I want my dad painted on velvet. Again, he shows me on the cell phone. And I go, you little SOB. 
he wasn't little at all, but his father is Ernest Borgnine, and there I have Ernest Borgnine from the Wild Bunch, right next to Duke Wayne there. So we had a nice talk with Chris Borgnine and his, about his father. That's crazy. And the Duke. Yeah, so all these things can't be coincidences. It's just magic. And then I've had people come in who did the costume for Quentin Tarantino's Django movie. I had people who know uh, Pee Wee Herman who worked on his movies. Paul Rubens. Yeah, Paul Rubin. I had uh, I got a guy in here who was just in studio with Iggy Pop like a week before the record was out. So I get interesting people in here looking for something different, something new, something you've never seen before. And that's what we got you know, in volumes from the Black Light Room, the Hall of Elvis, the Naked Lady Room, and the Tiki area, the Wild West, or my wall of sound. You got everything. There's David Bowie and the Diamond Dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's so let's finish. I want to talk about the um, your Blacklight Room. Let's um, let's end on that because I think that is that's my favorite room. Uh, so this is where basically all the velvets are painted with some sort of fluorescent painting. You turn on a black light and it's crazy in there. They put it in your words because crazy in there is how I put it. What? Yeah, it is crazy. It's something you'll never see. It's all black light and so. The paintings just pop because the luminosity, it looks like the paintings are literally on fire, but they're not. It's just the black light picking up the spectrum from the paint. And so there's, I don't know how many paintings are in that room, but there's beanbag chairs, and then the carpet is all black lights. There's cosmic bowling carpeting. So your eyes are just assaulted with all these images, all looking like they're on fire. A black light from matadors, the devil pointing his finger at you, to scary clowns, to, uh, oh, geez, just about anything you can imagine in there. Yeah, I was going to mention the clown, because you do have a clown that kind of pops out at you in there, and it's oh, oh, even yeah. scarier in there than it is anywhere yeah, else. Yeah, that one, yeah, I got that down to Gellis. That's one of the most scary clowns ever, more mm -hmm. scary than, like, the murdering clowns in the that, real world. It is. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So now, how could someone see all this stuff? Are you are you online? Where you? And we'll get your location here. Where, where can people see you? Well, you can see if you can't get to Los Angeles, you can go to velveteria.com. We have... Velveteria LA Instagram. We're on Facebook, and um, and then we're in the physical world. Seven Eleven New High, Los Angeles, California, right up f from Felipe's famous French dip sandwiches, two blocks up from that in LA. It's a landmark here, so we're like uh, pot, you know we're the. LA's new high, 7-Eleven new high, Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> and that black light room really is LA's Speaking new high. Speaking of, right. Yeah. I've had people, I had some young uh, USC students from China in here. They're 18, 19 years old, and they sat in there for four hours. <laughs> and, and they were not little Southern California potheads, you know. No, no, doing no. Doing that. But, you know, we get those two, and that's fine and dandy because, you know, we grew up, I grew up seeing these. You know, black light paintings, like I said, down in the head shops in the 60s. So I said, oh, man, I got to bring back that and show the hipsters what's really hip. Because that is, I've been told over and over, that's the coolest room in the universe. It's pretty amazing. Uh, four hours is a long time to stay in there, but it is, it is pretty cool nonetheless, uh, even sober. 
Uh, Carl, I want to thank you for being on the program, man. This has been incredible. Thank you well, very much. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. We didn't talk about wrestling too much, but we well, do have Hulk Hogan <laughs> and uh, Macho Man Savage. And, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. In here. I'll put up a picture for yeah, the website. They're, we'll they're, they're guarding the front it. door, so nobody mess with us. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, cool. Especially you art critics, man. Yeah. The Hulk, the Hulk, Hulk is going to slam you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Carl, thank you so much. And, uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. You can check us out on the web at fascinatingnouns.com and at the bottom of the page you'll see all kinds of social media links. I'll give them to you now if I can remember in no particular order. Twitter at Fascinating Noun, and we have Facebook.com backslash Fascinating Nouns. If you want to check out some of the media, the great pictures, videos, all the stuff we put up, Pinterest.com backslash Fascinating Noun, singular once again. You can check out all the great pictures. This one's going to have no shortage of incredible photographs. And also, we are on YouTube. You can check out the YouTube link at the bottom of the page to check out the incredible supplemental material for all of the episodes, including this one. i got a couple of cool little stand-ups with Carl. If you like all those things, it's possible that you may like some of the other things that I do. DanielJGlenn.com will give you links to all of my other projects, including Fascinating Fights, which you can check out on Twitter at, at @fascinatingfight. Um, you can also check out FascinatingFights.com. And if you like me, for some strange reason, you can check out my Instagram page at the Daniel J. Glenn and my personal Twitter account, which is at Daniel J. Glenn. Thank you very much for listening. End of transmission.